0: Chapter the Eighth, Sections Two through Four of The Secret Places of the Heart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carl Henning. The Secret Places of the Heart by H. G. Wells. Chapter the Eighth. SECTIONS TWO THROUGH FOUR The shadow of Martin stood over him, inexorable. He had to release Miss Grammont from the adventure into which he had drawn her. This decision stood out stern and inevitable in his mind with no conceivable alternative. As he looked at the task before him, he began to realize its difficulty. He was profoundly in love with her, He was still only learning how deeply, and she was not going to play a merely passive part in this affair. She was perhaps as deeply in love with him. He could not bring himself to the idea of confessions and disavowals. He could not bear to think of her disillusionment. He felt that he owed it to her not to disillusion her, to spoil things for her in that fashion. To turn into something mean and ugly after she has believed in me it would be like playing a practical joke upon her it would be like taking her into my arms and suddenly making a grimace at her it would scar her with a second humiliation should he take her on to bath or exeter to-morrow and contrive by some sudden arrival of telegrams that he had to go from her suddenly but a mere sudden parting would not end things between them now unless he went off abruptly without explanations or any arrangements for further communications at the outset of this escapade there had been a tacit but evident assumption that it was to end when she joined her father at falmouth it was with an effect of discovery that sir richmond realized that now it could not end in that fashion that with the whisper of love and the touching of lips something had been started that would go on, that would develop. To break off now and go away without a word would leave a raw and torn end, would leave her perplexed and perhaps even more humiliated with an aching mystery to distress her. Why did he go? Was it something I said, something he found out or imagined? Parting had disappeared as a possible solution of this problem. She and he had got into each other's lives to stay. The real problem was the terms upon which they were to stay in each other's lives. Close association had brought them to the point of being, in the completest sense, lovers. That could not be, and the real problem was the transmutation of their relationship to some form compatible with this honor and her happiness. A word, an idea, from some recent reading floated into sir richmond's head sublimate he whispered we have to sublimate this affair we have to put this relationship upon a higher plane his mind stopped short at that presently his voice sounded out of the depths of his heart god how i loathe the higher plane god has put me into this higher plane business like some poor little kid who has to wear irons on its legs. I want her, do you hear, Marden? I want her. As if by a lightning flash, he saw his car with himself and Miss Grammont. Miss Seyffert had probably fallen out, traversing Europe and Asia in headlong flight, to a sunlit beach in the South Seas. His thoughts presently resumed as though these unmannerly and fantastic interruptions had not occurred. We have to carry the whole affair on to a higher plane, and keep it there. We two love one another, that has to be admitted now. I ought never to have touched her, I ought never to have thought of touching her, but we two are too high, our aims and work and obligations are too high for any ordinary love making. That sort of thing would embarrass us, would spoil everything. "'Spoil everything,' he repeated, rather like a small boy who learns an unpalatable lesson. For a time, Sir Richmond, exhausted by moral effort, lay staring at the darkness. "'It has to be done. I believe I can carry her through with it if I can carry myself. She's a finer thing than I am. On the whole, I am glad it's only one more day. Belinda will be about.' Afterwards, we can write to each other. If we can get over the next day, it will be all right. Then we can write about fuel and politics, and there won't be her voice and her presence. We shall really sublimate. First class idea, sublimate. And I will go back to dear old Martin, who's all alone there and miserable. I'll be kind to her and play my part, and tell her her carbuncle scar rather becomes her and in a little while I shall be altogether in love with her again queer what a brute I've always been to Martin queer that Martin can come in a dream to me and take the upper hand with me queer that now mm. I love Martin he thought still more profoundly By the time the committee meets again, I shall have been tremendously refreshed. He repeated, Put things on the higher plane, and keep them there. Then go back to Martin, and so to the work. That's it. Nothing so pacifies the mind as a clear-cut purpose. Sir Richmond fell asleep during the fourth recapitulation of this program section three when miss grammont appeared at breakfast sir richmond saw at once that she too had had a restless night when she came into the little long breakfast room of the inn with its brown screens and its neat white tables it seemed to him that the miss grammont of his nocturnal speculations the beautiful young lady who had to be protected and managed and loved unselfishly "'vanished like some exercised intruder. "'Instead was this real dear young woman "'who had been completely forgotten "'during the reign of her simulacrum "'and who now returned completely remembered, "'familiar, friendly, intimate. "'She touched his hand for a moment. "'She met his eyes with the shadow of a smile in her own. "'Oranges!' "'said Belinda from the table by the window. "'Beautiful oranges!' "'She had been preparing them, "'poor transatlantic exile, "'after the fashion in which grapefruits are prepared "'upon liners and in the civilized world of the West. "'He's getting us teaspoons,' said Belinda as they sat down. "'This is realer England than ever,' she said. "'I've been up an hour.' I found a little path to the river bank. It's the greenest morning world and full of wild flowers. Look at these. That's lady's smock," said Sir Richmond. "It's really not a flower, it's a quotation from Shakespeare. And there are cowslips. Cuckoo buds of yellow hue do paint the meadows with delight. All the English flowers came out of Shakespeare." I don't know what we did before his time. The waiter arrived with the teaspoons for the oranges. Belinda, having distributed these, resumed her discourse of enthusiasm for England. She asked a score of questions about Gloucester and Chepstow, the Severn and the Romans and the Welsh, and did not wait for the answers. She did not want answers. She talked to keep things going. Her talk masked a certain constraint that came upon her companions after the first morning's greetings were over. Sir Richmond, as he had planned upstairs, produced two Michelin maps. "'Today,' he said, "'we will run back to Bath, from which it will be easy for you to train to Falmouth. We will go by Manmouth, and then turn back through the Forest of Dean.' where you will get glimpses of primitive coal mines still worked by two men and a boy with a windlass and a pail perhaps we will go through sirencester i don't know perhaps it is better to go straight to bath in the very heart of bath you will find yourselves in just the same world you visited at pompeii bath is pompeii overlaid by jane austen's england he paused for a moment we can wire to your agents from here, before we start, and we can pick up their reply at Gloucester, or Nailsworth, or even Bath itself, so that if your father is nearer than we suppose. But I think to-morrow afternoon will be soon enough for Falmouth, anyhow." He stopped interrogatively. Miss Grammont's face was white. "'That will do very well,' she said. Section four they started but presently they came to high banks that showed such masses of bluebells ragged robin great stitchwort and the like that belinda was not to be restrained she clamoured to stop the car and go up the bank and pick her hands full and so they drew up by the roadside, and Sir Richmond and Miss Grammont sat down near the car, while Belinda carried her enthusiastic onslaught on the flowers up the steep bank, and presently out of earshot. The two lovers said unheeded things about the flowers to each other, and then fell silent. Then Miss Grammont turned her head, and seemed deliberately to measure her companion's distance. Evidently, she judged her out of earshot. "'Well,' said Miss Grammont in her soft, even voice, "'we love one another. "'Is that so still? "'I could not love you more. "'It wasn't a dream? "'No. "'And tomorrow we part?' "'He looked her in the eyes. "'I have been thinking of that all night,' he said at last. "'I, too.' "'And do you think?' "'That we must part.' Just as we arranged it, when was it, three days or three ages ago? There is nothing else in the world to do except for us to go our ways. I love you. That means for a woman. It means that I want to be with you, but that is impossible. Don't doubt whether I love you because I say impossible. Sir Richmond, faced with his own nocturnal decision, was now moved to oppose it flatly. Nothing that one can do is impossible. She glanced again at Belinda and bent down towards him. Suppose, she said, you got back into that car with me. Suppose that instead of going on as we have planned, you took me away. How much of us would go? You would go, said Sir Richmond, and my heart. And this work of yours, and your honour? For the honour of a man in this new age of yours will be first of all in the work he does for the world, and you will leave your work to be just a lover, and the work that I might do because of my father's wealth, all that would vanish too. We should leave all of that, all of our usefulness, all that much of ourselves. But what has made me love you? Just your breath of vision? Just the sense that you mattered? What has made you love me? Just that I have understood the dream of your work? All that we should have to leave behind. We should specialize in our own scandal. We should run away just for one thing. To think, by sharing the oldest, simplest, dearest indulgences in the world, that we had got each other, when really we had lost each other, lost all that mattered. Her face was flushed with the earnestness of her conviction. Her eyes were bright with tears. Don't think I don't love you. It's so hard to say all this. Somehow it seems like going back on something. Something supreme. Our instincts have got us. Don't think I'd hold myself from you, dear. I'd give myself to you with both hands. I love you. When a woman loves, I at any rate she loves altogether. But this thing, I am convinced, cannot be. I must go my own way, the way I have to go. My father is the man, obstinate, more than half a savage. For me, I know it. He has the jealousy of ten husbands. If you take me, if our secret becomes manifest— If you are to take me and keep me, then his life and your life will become wholly this feud, nothing but this feud. You have to fight him anyhow. That is why I, of all people, must keep out of the quarrel. For him, it would be an immense excitement, full of the possibility of fierce satisfactions. For you, whether you won me or lost me, it would be utter waste and ruin. She paused and then went on. And for me, too, waste and ruin. I shall be a woman fought over. I shall be fought over as dogs fight over a bone. I shall sink back to the level of Helen of Troy. I shall cease to be a free citizen, a responsible free person. Whether you win me or lose me, it will be waste and ruin for us both. Your fuel commission will go to pieces. All the wide, enduring work you have set me dreaming about will go the same way. We shall just be another romantic story, no? Sir Richmond sat still, a little like a sullen child. She thought, I hate all this, he said slowly. I didn't think of your father before, and now I think of him. It sets me bristling for a fight. It makes all this harder to give up. And yet, do you know, in the night I was thinking, I was coming to conclusions very like yours for quite other reasons. I thought we ought not to. We have to keep friends anyhow, and hear of each other. That goes without saying. I thought we ought not to go on to be lovers in any way. That would affect you, touch you too closely. I was sorry I had kissed you. Not I, no. Don't be sorry for that. I'm glad we have fallen in love, more glad than I have been of anything else in my life, and glad we have spoken plainly, though we have to part, and, her whisper came close to him, for a whole day yet, all round the clock twice, you and I have one another. Miss Seyffert began speaking as soon as she was well within earshot. I don't know the name of a single one of these flowers, she cried, except the bluebells. Look at this great handful I've gotten. Springtime in Italy doesn't compare with it, not for a moment. End of chapter the eighth, sections two through four, recording by Carl Henning.